Hey, it's Scott at Founders of Friends Podcast and Cruise Consulting. And before we get to Charles Hudson's awesome podcast here, quick shout out to Brex, our sponsor. Brex makes credit cards easy for startups. There's no personal guarantee. It integrates into QuickBooks very easy, which is saying something. Also, you can provision new credit cards very easily. It's a really nice, easy solution. We recommend it. And if you go through the sign-up process on Brex and type in Cruise, K-R-U-Z-E, you get a discount. Check out Brex. And now to the podcast with Charles. Thanks. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orn at Cruise Consulting. And today, my very special guest is Charles Hudson of Precursor. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we are the two coolest guys on earth. We're recording a podcast on New Year's Eve. (laughs) (laughs) I was available. I was surprised you were available, but you are. And before we turn on the microphones, we talked about you have a two-year-old, I have a one-year-old. That's right. We're in the same zone of life, so it's fun. We've known each other for a long time, but for the audience, retrace your career and talk about how you started Precursor. Yeah, it's been quite the journey getting Precursor off the ground. Uh, I won't go all the way back to the beginning, but you know my first venture experience right out of college was I worked for InQtel, the CIA's venture capital group, which was really great experience. It was my first exposure to venture um, right out of school. Worked on some really amazing companies. Really liked my time there. Ended up going back to business school and coming out of business school really felt like I wanted some operating experience. So spent some time working at public companies like Google. Worked for a handful of startups as well and sort of made my way back into investing in 2010 at the very end of the year when I started working with Jeff Clavier at Uncork Capital, formerly known as SoftTech, and really enjoyed my time there. And when I joined him, it's funny to think that, ironically, when I joined SoftTech, Uncork, it would have been a pre-seed fund today. We had a $15 million fund that Jeff had raised that I came in and joined him at the very tail end of that as he was gearing up to raise Fund 3, which was a $55 million fund, which probably would have been a small seed fund in today's context. So it's funny to think about how much things changed. The dollars are bigger, <laughs> They got sure. way bigger. And while I was there, we went from $15 million under management to probably 330 wow. by the time I left, and that was only in about five or six wow. years. Wow, wow. Yeah. And I think he also, he, him and you, like to find the seed fund and like that, that be, like everyone kind of knew what that was. And then what I find so interesting about Precursor was you saw another opportunity to go earlier and to find that. Like maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think the funny thing is in venture, I think everything old becomes new again. And I think what I realized <laughs> from working with Jeff is, you know, when he started SoftTech Uncork, you know, it was him, Mike Maples, Aiden Senka. There was a really small crew of people that were doing this new kind of investing, this institutional seed thing. Yeah. And I think if you look at the returns for that vintage of funds, they're going to be amazing. Because there were not a lot of people who had sort of figured out that there was this institutional round between friends and family and Series A. And as the asset class expanded, it got more competitive. But I'd still argue those funds are still among the top, oh, yeah. the top of their game for well, what they do. And for people who don't know, you used to just almost raise us a, a Series A right away. That's right. Like that's, and, but I feel like that was, to build the minimum viable product was tougher, to get going was mm-hmm. tougher, so you needed a lot more capital as yep. you raised a Series A. But that really kind of cut off the amount of people or the, the type right. of people who could raise venture capital. And then the seed market developed, mm-hmm. and keep, now keep going here. Yeah, so I mean, I remember when I was first in venture, three on three was not an uncommon round yeah, to see. Yeah. You know, you, tons of dilution, but wow. you were in business, and yeah. like, these, these were not, it was a good time to be an investor. <laughs> wow. Not a great time to be an 50% in dilution, that's <laughs> yes. crazy. The big aha for me at, at Precursor was, and you know, I was very happy at SoftTech. Jeff was great to me. We got great deal flow. I liked the founders we worked with. What I realized, though, is I really liked writing checks that were 500K and below. 
And as our fund got larger and larger, I think this is just across the board in the seed market. Seed rounds, when I first started in 2010, if someone raised more than a million and a half dollars, sort of like, wait a minute, that's a lot of money for yeah. a seed stage company. Yeah. 750 to a million was kind of yeah. par for the course. And now it's 4 million is maybe the upper bound of, of what we see. And what I noticed is all of the people who'd been really successful in the early 2007 to 2010 seed stage, so that's your Felicis, your Freestyle, Cowboy, Floodgate, all those firms, they'd gone from small funds to funds that were approaching $100 million. Yeah. And it just didn't make sense to write a 250 or even a 500K yeah. check for a fund of that size. Can I ask you why you think they moved up market like that or moved up market in dollar size? I think two things happened. One, and I can relate to this as someone who's early and building out Precursor, it's so hard to raise money in the beginning that when it becomes easier, I think the temptation is to grow your fund size. Yeah. And for some people, I think the intention was always to get to 100. It just yeah. takes a while to get there. That's the size for their organizational characteristics. That's what they needed. I also just think if people start offering you money, it, it's kind of not always easy to turn it down. You tell yourself a story that your strategy is elastic and it yeah. can what you do at 25, you can do also yeah. at 75, but just with a few tweaks. I also think the returns are really good for those people. Yeah. So it probably made them feel like, hey, we actually have demonstrated we are good stewards of capital so yeah. we can handle more of it. And they were probably walking a tightrope for a long time in management fee and being able yeah. to hire people and what they could do. And you probably just get men. I know because we walk a, a tightrope too because we're yeah. bootstrapped. Like you walk a tightrope for so long, you, like you said, having people offer you more money just makes a lot of things easier. And I also just think if your goal is to build something that feels like a real institutional organization with an office, with multiple partners, with support staff, that stuff all costs money. Yeah. And I think entrepreneurs don't always realize that a startup venture fund is basically a bootstrapped activity if you're below $10 million. Like you're just not going to have Big enough time. in management fees. Yeah to cover your operating costs and pay yourself. Yeah. Well, and I so, remember talking to you when you were first starting Precursor, and I was right. like, how are you gonna pay yourself? Like not even, and I know you're not the type of person that's trying to pay themselves a lot, but just like how do you pay a mortgage and you know that kind of stuff. It's really difficult in San Francisco if you wanna start a venture fund from scratch, especially if you don't have savings. Yeah. So I, once I sort of realized I was going to do Precursor, I started making some plans to be able to, to go, but. I tell everyone if you're starting a venture fund, I would say, you know, save enough for two years and hope that you get done in a year. Yeah. Maybe you'll Getting be done in a year would be really good. That would be out yes. of this world hitting a home <laughs> run. And then by the way, when you're done, if your first fund is just to do the math, if it's fifteen or twenty million bucks, even if it's ten or fifteen million yeah. bucks, which is reasonable, you're only gonna have a quarter million dollars a year yeah. in management fee to cover everything. everything. Like any any analyst, anyone, any computer, you know, any office, travel. Yeah. Oh, travel. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. It adds oh up. God. Yeah. Okay. So I interrupted you. So, so you saw what all those other cowboy and fleece and soft tech mm -hmm. and all those funds are doing and you smelled an opportunity. Basically. Yeah. And I mean, look, I think the person who saw this way before I did is Manu Kumar. I mean, I think he's really the person who, um, when I think about inspirations for precursor Manu, what he did at at K9 and what Michael Deering has done at Harrison Metal. Yeah. They're both inspirations, and I think Manu particularly in Precede, because I think he was the first person I know to really recognize there was this opportunity to go earlier than institutional seed firms, take uh, real risk, but make a really strong institutional commitment to back people. Yeah. And he's done phenomenally well, and he's gonna yeah. do super well with Carta and a handful of other investments. So when I think about 
on the pre-seed side, I think he doesn't get enough credit because he's not a self-promotional person, yeah. so I'm going to promote him here. Nice. Um, he really deserves a lot of credit for, I think, bringing awareness to the pre-seed category. And then Michael Lehring is actually, <coughs> I met him once, He's or met him twice, he's amazing. I actually pitched him for something. <laughs> And, uh, but we actually send everyone who becomes an account manager at Cruise Consulting to his general management, yeah, his general management mm-hmm. classes. And unequivocally, people love it. It's like the, and it's an amazing for us, like to be able to get people like the exposure to like a mini MBA over a weekend is, is pretty incredible. He's an amazing teacher. Yeah. And he's the person I, I go to quite often when I have sort of structural, what should I do? Yeah. Kind of questions that Breakers or Brad Feld and, and Michael Deering are both people who have been awesome. super helpful. Those are that. two very good resources. <laughs> yeah. So you saw you saw what those two guys were doing, and, but you also kind of could probably could relate from it from the soft tech. And what, maybe tell the audience what pre-seed is. Or yeah. I remember that your initial like when you're thinking about doing this pitch, but like what it, what is pre-seed? So the way I think about pre-seed is it's really small rounds, and small is a relative term, right? To me, it's a million dollars or less for someone who has significant things to prove about the model that they're building. You know, like all startups, you start with the thesis. You get in market and you realize that the world is different than what you thought. And so when I started Precursor, I was like, well, there's this probably a handful of entrepreneurs out there who can't raise that first million. It turns out that the pool of pre-seed companies is about 10x what I thought it would be. And what I realized is there's really two fundraising markets in venture for people who don't have traction. There's the I'm the repeat founder or I just spun out of Facebook, Google, Pinterest, whatever, famous company. My old manager and my friends are going to give me a million dollars on an uncapped note or, on or, a ten, more. or more or series a or yeah. series a and yeah. i and fundraising i'm raising on reputation and expectation and those people have a fundamentally different journey and those are the people who always had access to capital always. in the old days before seed and pre-seed mm-hmm. that's kind of what i was talking about they just raised a series that's a right. but there was a very select few like that's you right. had to be kind of in the club mm-hmm. and you know and so that's one segment and, in the market. And I, and I think that segment of the market is actually really well served. If you're yeah. that person, you're going to have, it's never easy, you're going to have a very straightforward time raising capital. Yeah. There's this other large pool of people that I, I underestimated the size of that are, I would say, manager to director level people at either public or private companies. They're just not famous. They're not big on Twitter. They're not people you've heard of. They don't have previous liquidity. They've probably never done this before, but they're super capable and very insightful about what they're building. And those people oftentimes aren't connected to capital. They don't know a lot about fundraising. They might have a friend or two who's raised, but it's their first time. Yeah. And they really only need 500K or a million to figure out if the thing that they want to build is worth building and whether they can do it. And there isn't really a great product for that person. They can't get it from angels because angels will just say, I love you, here's 25K, come back, yeah. and we'll do this. I can only write a 25K check or whatever, yeah. And they won't one other thing terms. I would say, if I can add, yeah. they are probably living a problem in a super hardcore way, or see some something, you know, that's maybe the, the famous person who spends a lot of time on Twitter building their brand isn't really living. So I, I always love those entrepreneurs, because they, they come in, well, they, come, they usually get funding from you or something like you, and then they call us, and it's like, Oh, I know. I can see that you hear it in their voice. They're That's like, right. oh, I had this problem at this company or this company, and boom, and now I'm addressing it. I know what I'm doing. And I find, to your point, I find a lot of these people, it's like they were director of product at some company, and they're like, oh, I kept banging my head against this one problem, and we didn't solve it, and I realized that it's bigger than just our company, yeah. and so I'm building a product that can yeah. address We get a lot yeah. of those. 
That's those are like the most exciting to me. I think those are really cool. We've done well. We've done really well yeah. with, with those kinds of companies. And so they come to you or they reach out to you, have not being famous, not some of the heuristics that a normal VC would yeah. use. You ha you can't really use. So how do you go about evaluating them? It's kind of funny. The biggest thing I look for is a founder that has what I think is just a non-obvious insight about the problem that they want to solve. My biggest fear, honestly, is is that people will have obvious insights and will end up with 10, 20, 30 other venture-backed startups yeah, that are yeah. doing the exact same thing yeah. in the exact same category. I think you're seeing this in some segments of the direct-to-consumer space. You'll get 50 companies building the same pair of shoes, all using Instagram <laughs> ads to sell them, and you're kind of like, ah, isn't there more? Yeah. Isn't there yeah. more to this? So. That's the big thing that I look for, and we're a generalist fund, so I don't have a lot of deeply held theses. I don't have a punch list of we're looking for companies in these eight or 10 areas. It really ends up being meeting founders who can educate me on what yeah. it is that they're building and get me as excited about the problem that they're solving as they are. I think that's the best part of being a VC, by the way, is you have- By far. You have like a world expert or someone who's so knowledgeable and they spend an hour teaching you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really cool. And I find the people who can get me excited, that's generally a translatable skill. Like they'll recruit well, they'll fundraise well. And I don't know, I feel like the funny thing is 10 years ago, I think betting on first time founders was harder. There was just less information available about how to start a company. Yeah. There were fewer third party service providers. You had to have that's more stuff point. in in house, yeah. whether it was finance, accounting, server, like everything you IT, kind of had to, yeah. IT, you had to, you had to own it. You can also find people to work at your startup a lot easier This now. is a big thing. That's huge. This is a big thing. And I think in general, startup founders are helpful to each other in a way that I think maybe they always have been, they just were harder to find. Yeah. And so I think it's a, it's a, betting on first time founders, I think for a lot of people is scary, but I'm like, it's, it's more likely to me. I guess I'm an optimist. It's like the earth is flattening a little That's bit. That's right. Because I think the I think that last point's a really interesting one. I hadn't thought of that, but I think they've always been helpful to each other. But now there's like email listservs that they can. I don't know if Precursor has one, but we like my Common has one, mm -hmm. and all you know, First Round Capital has one. We get tremendous amount of referrals from them. Totally. Because they just help each other out. Very, it's easy to help each other out. Like it's a quick little boom, boom, boom. A lot less friction in finding people. I mean, I remember when I was at Incutel, we would still get business plans in the mail. <laughs> like, <laughs> like two inch binders and yeah, FedEx. Yeah. And it's funny sometimes to think about how fast the world can change. And so my view is that it's never been a better time to back first time people because the resources they have to be successful are better than they've ever been. Yeah. That's a really good, that's like a quote. That should be on like the precursor. We, we draw this little chart for my LPs, I think they're probably sick of seeing it, where I tell them like, look, if you think about this two by two chart, like there's how much information do we have about the business and how much information do we have about the founder? If it's a really well-known person and the business already has traction, they're gonna basically raise an infinite amount of money yeah. at whatever price they want. If you don't know the person, but they've got really good data, we call that strangers bearing data, you can get comfortable with the fact that you don't know the person. Yeah. If the person doesn't have any data but is super famous, you're just betting on them to figure it out. It's yeah. that bottom left quadrant yeah. that I think is terrifying for most people, and like we're betting that that's where we're gonna make our money. Is not it? famous and low not, data. And low, low data. You get good prices there. Well, I was gonna say, so um, there's one other, I think, amazing insight you had. I think you mentioned this to me, like, I still remember going to brush yeah. with you like five years ago, yeah. whenever you were starting, and you said something like, I have a thesis, I'm paraphrasing here, but the angel market or the pre-seed market needs a catalyst, someone who is willing to price around. That is what is missing. 
And then I think like three years ago or two years ago, in one of your annual letters, you're like, I confirm this. And the, one of the core values you deliver is you are willing to write your name down and give someone a price, which then facilitates capital coming in behind you. Is that, is that it, accurate? This has been the most surprisingly important thing that we do at Precursor. Yeah. Because I think you can get a lot of people who will say, I'm in for 100 when you find a lead or... If you get to 750, I mean, I won't fund you. And there's all this conditional financing that you yeah. can get as yeah. a first-time founder. And the other thing is, you know, repeat founders, I think, know how to see through the fog of what they're being told. Yeah. And they know that that's not really a commitment. Yeah. Not every first-time founder totally. can see through the totally. fog. And they'll come to me and say, well, we have soft circle 200K in angel commitments. I'm like, okay. But you probably know those people. I know those people. <laughs> <laughs> you know how often they follow through on that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I say, okay, you basically have zero, hopefully up to 200. Yeah. And what I found that happens is it changes the whole trajectory of a lot of people's fundraising. When I say, I'm going to give you a term sheet for 250K, and our 250K is not conditional on you getting any other yeah. arbitrary money. You're going to get our 250K no matter what. Get to work. Get to work. If this is enough for you to get going, you can take just our money. We'll go back out in three months and raise more. And what I found happens is that people who are stuck suddenly get unstuck yeah. and their yeah. rounds have momentum. Yeah. And it's like all fundraising. If you don't have momentum, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. And what I found is that giving people a term sheet or making an unconditional commitment to invest changes the dynamic. And the other thing is it means we get a price that's fair. Yeah. And the thing I always tell our LPs is I don't want to get into the world of predatory venture yeah. pricing. Yeah, like yeah, we yeah. have to pay a price that accurately reflects the risk that we're taking on. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be some rock bottom price. Because my biggest fear when I started Precursor and one of the LPs I really wanted to get in who didn't come in, basically said, I'm really worried that you're gonna end up in adverse selection. And you're just gonna end up with all the companies that aren't good enough to get yeah. money from the best seed funds. Yeah. And I think if you make price the sole vector, that's very possible that yeah. could happen. Or you end up three years down the line with the, the, the CEOs or founders not owning enough of the company and they get stuck because they're not excited. And so you have, that's a fine line to walk. And the other thing is, to the thing we talked about before, entrepreneurs have never been more interconnected. And I think if you're yeah. going around giving people really, really low ball valuations and the only reason they're taking them is because they're naive and disconnected from capital, yeah. Yeah. when they talk to their friends, they're gonna go, wow, I really got taken advantage yeah, of, yeah. and I don't want that to be the first experience people have building a relationship yeah. with us. The other thing that I, so I do a lot of conversations walking founders through the dilution of math, and there's something you said, you're like, you basically said up to a million, but most of the stuff I see you doing or other funds like you is like 500K. Uh -huh. And if you do the math on like, I don't know, what's the average? What's your average valuation? Ah, like four, four million? Yeah, yeah. four. Okay, so that so that's makes the math, a little, my math is a little good. You're basically selling what, 15? 10, 15%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not, to get $500,000 and be in business. Because I would say almost everyone I've seen you do yeah. is like not in business yet. That's right. That you get them in the business. That's right. That's a small price to pay to be in business at least six to nine months of runaway. Yeah. They can add, and then they can use your money as a catalyst. It's different if you're taking $2 million on four. You've sold half the company, You be, that better work or you're in trouble. Like So oftentimes, like the actually walking through the math with them is, is, a, is opens their mind to it, you know? Because sometimes people will get stuck on, they almost like, they, they're almost hurting themselves, but they're not willing to take money to get into business because they think the valuation's not high enough. But then they waste like three to six months yeah. doing nothing. And it's like, dude, if you just would have taken the money, you'd be so far along now. 
it's really funny. So I was talking to one of our, I'm doing a bunch of end of year check-ins with our LPs and one of them said, well, what's your philosophy on pricing, pricing deals? I go, oh, I generally have a price in mind. When I meet a founder, I take into account where are they with the business, how competitive is around. Yeah. And we don't really put a time frame on our term sheets. I tell people this is a standing offer because I don't want you to feel like you got boxed into this. I totally agree. And so yeah. we have a number of companies in our portfolio where we had a pretty significant difference in valuation. I said, this is the price that I tell people all the time. I don't know what the right price is. I can tell you what makes sense for me. I can tell you what I think is fair. And I will make an offer at that price. Yeah. If you find somebody who's willing to pay more, like, more power to you. I probably won't invest at that yeah, price. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't take their money. And, and be successful. And do be it, successful. It, yeah. And we have two companies right now where I've given them term sheets and the founders were, I sense that there was some hesitation. I'm like, this is not a binding, exploding term sheet. If you feel like you have other conversations that you want to explore, I'm willing to keep this open for, for quite some time because I want you to feel really good yeah, about yeah, yeah. the decision that you're making. Yeah. It's not open forever, but if you, if you need three or four weeks to have a bunch of other conversations and get more data, I'd rather have you take my money and feel like Having surveyed the market, the price is fair. That's exactly it, yeah. And Because um, then well, there's no resentment over the years. Everyone can be very healthy and positive. And, yeah, and, and it I guess makes I, so much sense. I guess I've just never felt like I wanted to enter into, a con- enter into a relationship with a founder where the first thing I did was give them a really hard timeline and squeeze them into something. And, you know, every now and then people will take a term sheet I give them and they'll use it for leverage to get someone else that they like better and a higher price and just like, Okay. Yeah. Like, it's not Men- the end of the world. Note. Mental note. Mental yeah. note. And yeah. like, that person and I probably weren't meant to work together. Yeah. It's kind of like you want your prom date to be excited to go That's to right. you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be <laughs> taking someone to prom at gunpoint. Um, now, I, I, so there's another I, – because I, I think what you've done is fascinating. You, you and these other folks you mentioned have defined like a whole asset class. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about it, the asset class – in terms of the founders, yeah. but you've also defined this asset class for investors. And when I say investors, I mean like institutional capital That's or wealthy right. people. Maybe you could talk about that journey a little bit. I dramatically underestimated how much skepticism I was gonna encounter when I started Precursor. I was like, oh I, yeah, I'll get the general skepticism of there's 500 or six, I don't know, how many, however many VC fronts Samir from First Republic says exists now, I'll just add 100 to that because there's probably 100 yeah. more since yeah, his yeah, last yeah, report. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yes, there'll be the general skepticism that why does the world need another venture fund? I didn't anticipate the amount of skepticism I would get about the model or like just the thesis that there was this gap at the bottom of the market that used to be filled by seed funds but is now available. And a lot of LPs just told me like it doesn't exist. I'm pulling out the decks of the seed funds. To say they'll do those checks. To say they'll do those checks. they don't really want to do those checks. And I said, just ask them when was the last time they wrote a check this small where it was meaningful to them. Sometimes they'll do it as like a supporting check or to... To, you know, to have well, you, you've been the on the ground. Like, that's the power of you being on the ground. In, in yeah. very much the same way the founders you back, you saw this opportunity because you've been on the ground, you've been talking to everyone, you know what's going on. The tricky counterintuitive thing, though, is the trick for precursors, how do we stay small? Interesting. Because I thought of that. it's like the. It's well, like, I kind of, I have to say, I kind of assumed you would march up the fund size. So that's interesting that you're going to stay small. Well, you know, I think I'm very sensitive with our model that if we raise too much capital for a fund, I will be subject to the same laws of returns gravity that every other VC fund yeah, is. And yeah. if we had a $75 million version of Precursor, I'd probably start saying, well, in what universe does this 250K check ever have a chance of returning a big chunk of the fund? And yeah. why do we write such a small check? We should write a bigger check. And then you become something else. Well, it's also, I think people may not understand, but your, the scalability of you, Charles Hudson, 
right? Because like, there's only so many emails you can answer, right. and people you can talk to, and podcasts you can record. That's right. And that's one of the, one of the things that forces people up because it's just right. better for them. But so th- so you want to stay small? That's like I, I do. I, I and maybe maybe I'm too stubborn on this point. I just feel like this is the work that I really enjoy doing, yeah. and I think it's a privilege to be able to work with people at this stage, and that they'll take our money, and that they'll work with us, and they'll yeah. refer their friends to us, and. I think we can do 20 to 25 investments a year and, and be a good partner to yeah. those people. I don't really know that I could do much more than that. And like one of the tensions in our model is by having only one decision maker, we certainly have portfolio companies that we've gotten into because I was able to move faster yeah, than yeah, other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And I'm grateful. Yeah. We also have some investments that we've made. If I had a partner, he or she probably would have yeah. talked me out of it and they would have been right. Yeah. And I, my biggest concern, the thing I wrestle with is what would we lose if we had a larger if we had a larger decision making investment committee and more capital i think we'd probably it feels to me we would lose both tails yeah the really wacky stuff that i'm glad that we're in that was sort of esoteric and my gut and i think some of the stuff that we probably should i think we'd probably lose a little bit on both of the tails yeah. and i think we need the tails I've been there in investment meetings um, where I got told no for deals that went on to be humongous. I also was there for deals that people, the partners saved me from. So, yep. but sometimes in venture capital, the the good ones outweigh like ten bad ones, and so I totally get what you're saying. Also, I think at some level, you're you're you have an incredible brand. People know who you are. People love working with you. If you move up the capital raising, you're kind of battling out with the same five to ten yeah. seed funds. You, you you may actually be able to move faster and have a higher success rate where you are just because of your branding and your track record already, I, right? I think so. And I, I think the other thing is like I have no aspiration to build a traditional seed fund because I think there's good ones. And the thing I the thing that's kind of frustrating about Precursor is I wish this might sound weird. I wish there were more Precursors. So I, have, I was going to say I don't really have many other people I can refer those deals to. Like that's how I know you're – in the zone, because I can be like, oh, I know I shouldn't refer this to Charles. Mm-hmm. I don't have like another another Charles. And we miss stuff, and like it, it kills me when we miss stuff. But I mean, the reality is like I think entrepreneurs would be better off if there were ten precursors, and not from a pricing standpoint. I think the pricing would stay largely the same. I just think there's different styles. Like our style and UI at precursor, it's not right for every entrepreneur. Yeah. There are people who want something different, and I think they should be well served. And look, I think between. The old guard of seed funds and the new generation, your homebrews and those. There's good up. There's yeah. 20 to 25 really good institutional seed funds. I don't know that I need to be the 26th. Yeah. At pre-seed, we have a real shortage, in my opinion, yeah. of high-quality institutional pre-seed funds who can help founders. And there's so much demand. We'll never be able yeah. to saturate. Yeah. Ten more funds, I wouldn't worry at all about not getting yeah. into the companies. Also, doing. ethical, nice to work with. That's all right. these things that like make it a pleasure to yeah. type that email. Um, I have one digression question. Yeah. Do the do the seed people like take you out to dinner? Like, it, like how how's that courting process? Because you're kind of like front of the funnel for them, right? Like, how does that how does that work? Yeah, it's interesting. We have a, a small set of funds where we have a really close. I have a close personal relationship with the GPs, and we have a very active dialogue. They understand which companies are in our portfolio. They know which ones are coming down the pipe yeah. that they should co-invest in. Uh, some of them send us gifts, so we are very <laughs> grateful for those. But in general, like I think of them as a really important constituency for yeah. precursors. Because part of my promise to the founders is, 
my job is to be in touch with what those people want yeah. so that when it's time for you to raise, I can give you good advice. Yes, and make it easy. Because <laughs> ultimately, you've taken your position with your capital, and now you need other people to help fund the company. It's just how it is. And honestly, half the time, I end up telling founders, I know that you really want to pitch this person. I just had coffee with them. I can't imagine they would possibly be interested yeah. in that business, just yeah. given what you're working on and what their interests are. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time trying to do that. Yeah. For the most part, it's pretty collegial. The only time it isn't is there are a handful of companies that are on the cusp where I meet them and the offer is one on four. A larger seed fund says, oh, these people are great. They don't. They could skip pre-seed. Two on ten. Two on ten. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. that happens sometimes, and um, I think it's fine. The founder gets more capital at a better price. I'll probably make a lower return on those investments, but that's okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so I told you this was gonna go fast, so we only got a few more minutes. So I had I asked a question at the beginning that are uh, off mic that you you really liked. Do the companies that you invest in realize you're a startup too? <laughs> that's a very broad. It's funny, but it, you can take a lot of different ways. Like what uh, what comes to mind? I try to shield them from the startup nature of Precursor. I'd be lying if I said they were always successful. Look, I think the biggest challenge. And the most startup-y thing that we've done that we're trying to break this habit is for most of the time that we were deploying capital out of Fund One, we were still fundraising for Fund One. Yeah. So there were definitely times when I told founders, oh, hey, tough, yeah. we're totally in. You'll get your money in 30 to 45 days. Now, we made good on every single one of those commitments. But in some cases, it took a little while longer yeah. than I would have liked. Yeah. And there's just some things that were, I would say, in the beginning of Precursor, we're rough around the edges because we were still trying to figure them out. Yeah, um, I'd like to think every day we get better and we get more professional, but there's still some startup-y things. And then occasionally founders will ask us about our business and our fundraise and about our budget, and I can see the gears turning in their head, and they're like, wow, I'm like, yes, this is a very lean <laughs> operation just like yours. And um, But I think I try not to make our problems and challenges their problems yeah. and challenges they have enough to deal with already. the the funding one is a good one because at lighthouse we were a debt fund we recycle capital so we were dependent on money coming back in to put it out i know exactly what you're talking about where you like you love a company you want to invest but being upfront with them is the key in that situation yeah and then we had we've had people who've said look based on what's on the table i have everyone else can close now and you can't yeah, so i'm gonna yeah, go yeah. with the people that and i'm like i totally respect that yeah yeah for sure what's one like commiserating Hopefully this jumps to mind for you. Yeah. You're talking to a founder, they're, they're complaining about something, and then you commiserate with them as a startup as well. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't, the copier's <laughs> broke and I don't have enough money to fix it, or something like that. Like, is there something that jumps to mind? I would probably say, honestly, it's investors getting all the way down the line. You think you're going to close them, and they change their mind. LPs, LPs have done that to me, yeah. and like, it's their right. It's their money. Yeah. And if at the last minute they decide that precursor is not right for them, I don't begrudge them that. Yeah. But sometimes I'll talk to a founder like, oh, I got all, we got five meetings in with this person. We went out to dinner. I thought it was a done deal, and I just got the email that they couldn't get it through the partnership. And I'm like... Yeah, let me tell you, I got the committee with this firm, and I thought they were going to be an anchor, and they didn't come in it's at all. It's the same exact thing. Same like, thing. you're living in the same exact world. That's, that's awesome. Okay, the final question. We are going to do a series on this um, coming up, how to raise a seed around with one of our CEOs. So I thought I would ask the master here, because essentially that you're giving them enough capital to then position them to raise a seed round. Yeah. What are one or two things that advice you would give? So I think the most common piece of advice that I give people, and I feel like a broken record, is the downside of all this information on the internet is I think people think that seed rounds are deterministic. If I get to 
100,000 in recurring revenue, then I will raise. Yeah. I'm like, no. Like, it's not it, a formula. It's not a formula. And don't worry about the formula. Yes, more revenue is better than no revenue, yeah. but the right kind of revenue. And yeah. I've seen companies do really weird things. I'm like, yeah, you got to some arbitrary revenue threshold of 20K, but the 20K you generated isn't at all indicative of yeah. how the business will work yeah. at scale. The other piece is, I tell people, remember, Seed is still as much about the story as it is about the data. So make sure you're answering the really big questions about yeah. your story. That's and a lot of word. times when I invest, we have a little checklist and air table when we invest, which is usually like, hey, what's the one thing that I think this company needs to prove as part of this raise? That's and oftentimes good. it's, for pre-seed, it's oftentimes ship the product. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, okay, there's no risk that we can ship, but can we crack customer acquisition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or can we figure out some like really nuanced thing about the size of the market or the market yeah. timing? Or can you get five people excited about the product mm-hmm. or something like that? That makes total sense. And I think I'm sympathetic to founders because I think what they really want is like, tell me what I have to prove to unlock the round then I'll go run through a brick wall and do it. And sometimes I'll tell you, I don't know exactly. If you look kind of like this, if you're growing quickly and you figure these things out, then you'll be good. And if you don't, then it's going to be hard. And like, I can't give you the answer that says you'll 100% raise if you do these five things. I always tell people exactly that. I think that's amazing advice. Because I always say like, some people are better salespeople than others. Mm -hmm. Or some people know how to tell a story or they're friends with someone. That's right. And they get the round despite they don't have this formulaic ARR number or whatever it is. Because I think people do kind of latch onto that a little too much. They do. But it's kind of like latching onto the GMAT score when you're going to the NBA, right? Like that is the one (laughs) quantitative thing that you can control. And so people latch onto that. Whereas... There's so many more intangibles that go into it. And I also tell people, remember, a really good seed investor in this environment is going to make six or eight new investments every year. So instead of thinking about how good your company is on an absolute basis, think about it like this person can say yes six or eight times a year. And how do you make yourself one of those one of those yeses? Yeah. That's the real competition. Yeah. And I think it's um, it's unsatisfying for founders. I think to sometimes realize that, but I'm like, that's what you're up against. That's life. It's ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, you're the man. Maybe you awesome. can tell everyone where you can find Precursor and how they can reach out to you. Uh, you can just. Uh, I spend probably too much time on Twitter, uh, so I'm just C Hudson on Twitter, and then we're PrecursorVC.com. Um, my email address is very easy to guess. We read. We try to read and respond to every cold email we get, as long as it's well written. And you can also um, submit your company for review on our website. We've got a, a form that pipes right to our CRM. So hope to hear from many of you. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate this it. This is awesome. Thanks, right, Charles. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Charles Hudson. He is a longtime friend. Hope you hear it in the conversation. He's so smart. He's awesome. And uh, I'm glad we were able to get him on a podcast. And before we sign off, quick shout out to Brex. They make credit cards for startups very easy. There's no personal guarantee. It's easy to get them all integrated into QuickBooks and sign up. You can provision new credit cards very easy. They have great rewards. So we're huge fans of Brex. Check them out. And when you go through the Brex sign up, just type in Cruise, K-R-U-Z-E, and you get a discount. And I hope that's it. And enjoy Brex. And I hope you got a lot of great stuff out of this Charles Hudson podcast. Thanks.